So I'm going to invite you this morning to meet with compassion. And compassion may show up for you in the form of one of the Trinity, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, or in another form. So, but I'm going to use the word compassion. So I'm going to invite you to this listening meditation to meet with compassion. And I'm going to ask you a series of questions that will lead you to a moment. And I invite you to come into presence and breathe and be still. And if this is true, that the divine seed is within us all, then this is really accessible for us all. So if you could meet compassion anywhere at all for a one-on-one -on -one that is safe, and you could gaze face-to-face -face with compassion, where would you want to meet? What would it look like? Just notice and breathe. This is a place that's in you that compassion has reserved for this encounter. So allow this place to be real and vivid for a moment and locate yourself. And just be here in this place, in this place of beholding. Just looking on purpose with the eyes of your heart. And just remember your breath is life and remember just to breathe. And notice your posture in this place of being, and maybe you're standing, walking, sitting, or lying down. And so whatever you're doing, there's no judgment. It just is. And as you're in this space, how does compassion come to you there? Maybe you need compassion to come in a particular way. And when we say come, we're not implying that compassion wasn't already there, but instead compassion has been waiting there your whole life and we're coming into a place of awareness for the one who is already in us and who waits for us at all times. We invite you to draw near and see how close compassion can come. And if you could see an expression on compassion's face, what expression do you see there? And one thing you won't see is despair. And in this space, what is compassion's eyes saying to you? If you could put words to the expression of compassion's eyes, what would those words be saying to you today?
And just hold whatever love and compassion is shared with you through compassion's eyes. And if this is true, and if what is compassion is shared with you is true, how would this change how you live? And we come into gratitude for all that we have received in this place. And we say, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And just hold the whisper that's been received this morning to your heart to refresh and renew your soul. And you can return to, to notice where you're at right now, back in the room where you're sitting and come back together again. And you're invited to turn back your video on again if you have switched it off. Thank you. And I was actually to pray for you, Brad, as well, which I forgot. <laughs> so I'm going to, um, I'm just, I have a little uh, prayer here just as we come to receive what Brad has to share for us. And the prayer is, generous God, I come to you again holding out my waiting cup begging that it first be emptied of all the blocks that blocks the way, then asking for its filling with love that tastes like you. So thank you, Brad. Over to you. Thank you. First of all, I want to welcome our special friends who are in Germany right now, Peter and Anne-Marie Helms. And uh, their name on the screen is Ed, E-D, for obvious reasons. Um, Peter, can you put your costume back on? There he is. This is how I'm supposed to like stay focused, right? That's Peter is an amazing evangelist. He's my, we collaborate when I'm in Europe and he does my translating. There he is. <laughs> That's your cheery moment for the morning, everyone. <clears throat> All right. So, um, so this morning I get the great privilege of starting the, uh, our, the individual Beatitudes. We looked a little bit at the big picture already. And today my theme is blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And I do want to just reiterate some things that were said uh, la the last week or two about how um, the Matthew chapter five is the beginning of this ascent up to um, 
onto the mountain where Jesus takes his disciples with him. He sits down and he begins to speak to them. And Matthew has written this in a very careful way that he's, he's trying to draw our attention to this idea of ascending the mountain. And uh, similarly, you know, Moses had ascended the mountain, but Jesus isn't the new Moses. Jesus is the one giving the new law. But it's not a law like before uh, um, in, in terms of a law that binds us to rules and so on. Uh, rather, it's the law of love that is, is given to us through grace. And so um, in, the, in the early church, they really talked about this ascent, uh, ascent, A-S-C-E-N-T, going up. And sometimes they'd even talk about it as a ladder of ascent or the ladder of the Beatitudes. And that really can make us allergic if we think that that's talking about, like, in modern terms, the ascent of competition or the ladder of comparison or kind of the climbing of religion and self-will. And, and so we really recoil from the idea of ascent or ladders or any of that language uh, because in a, in a way, uh, Christ has removed all that. But when uh, in the Gospel of John, uh, there's a vision of, of Jacob's ladder and Jesus reveals he's the ladder. And, and he's the one ascending and he's taking us with him. And he's saying, follow me. And so we climb up this, this uh, mountain of revelation together with Jesus and, and it, he also calls it the way of the cross. And so this becomes the surprising thing is that Christ's ascent is onto a cross. And then he, he says, like, do you still want to come? Uh, will you ascend with me into what crucifixion means for the old self and for your attachments and for your busyness and for your distractions? And well, I, don't, I don't know, maybe, maybe I want to fill my heart with those things. I don't know if I want to ascend and die. That would that feels wrong. Um, but there's also this sense of an ascent, not only of, uh, in terms of, of Christ ascending up on the, on the way of the cross, but there's also an ascending understanding of how we interpret what he says. So we would say we ascend from a literal reading to a moral reading to a spiritual or a gospel reading. And I just want to walk us through those three readings of blessed are the poor in spirit. So first of all, the literal, and all of these are important, um, but if we stop at the first one, we're not done and we won't get the gospel. We need the gospel, we need the good news. But first one's important too, and it is the literal sense. And, and when I say literal, I don't mean literalist. A literalist sense would say, well, when he says blessed are the poor in spirit, he means literally poor people. And you can pick this up if you start in Luke's version, where it's, it's not blessed are the poor in spirit. It's just blessed are the poor and woe to the rich. And if we read this as literalists, we end up just thinking poor people, good, rich people, bad, which puts us all in a, a lot of trouble. Uh, some of us may feel very poor, but if you have a screen with which to zoom, you're not poor. Um, relative to the rest of the world. Um, you may be struggling. You could even be homeless and watching this, but most of us, most of us uh, would be in the rich and we would be in great trouble if we just read this uh, in terms of literalism. But what I mean by literal is not that. I mean that there is a sense in which 
The poor in spirit are those who are broken in whatever way. So it could be financial poverty. It could be impoverishment of any kind where, uh, where we feel really under it. Where, and and um, I, I think that that's really still true. Blessed are, blessed are the poor in spirit. If, if you're broken, Jesus has good news for you. And you have a place at his table. And you are not cursed by God. And he is not punishing you for something, whatever your poverty of spirit is and uh, whatever your brokenness is. So I, I want to say it's not just a literalist kind of, it only counts if you're actually poor financially or something. But I also want to say it's not just purely spiritual either. So, um, so for example, the rest of the Beatitudes don't sound just like spiritualizing it. It's like mourning for real loss hunger for real justice, peacemaking for real uh, social change in the world. And so, so Matthew's not just spiritualizing away the brokenness here. Um, he's just going deep into it. And we, if we look at the scriptures very carefully, we see this, that you could actually be financially very poor, but be prideful in your heart. Or you could be the second in command of a whole empire, like Joseph or Daniel, but have poverty of spirit in your heart. So it's, it's not just about classism here, but, but that's what we mean by the literal sense of this is, are you broken? Are you empty? Are you under it? If so, the good news is for you. But we don't just uh, stop there. We go from a literal sense to a moral sense. And by moral sense, again, I'm not saying moralist. Moralism is if you were to take the, the Beatitudes and make them just a new set of laws to obey and, and something to measure up to. And we couldn't, we couldn't measure up to the old law. Why would we think we could measure up to the new law? So it's not just sort of like this, this new tablet of stones that, 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 that you need to uh, treat as a new Torah or a new set of rules. But there is a moral sense. So not, not literalist, but literal not moralist, but moral. And the moral sense is about transformation and the, great, the way grace changes us from the inside. And the Beatitudes are describing not only our brokenness, but they're describing a kind of, of transformation in us where we're being emptied of, of everything in us that opposes love. We're being emptied of everything in us that ties us down and addicts us. And so there's this transformation, but grace is what does it. And so um, you can even think about the Beatitudes as Jesus' version of the fruit of the Spirit. So to be poor in spirit is not just like, oh, you're, you're broken. No, to be poor in spirit is to be humble like Jesus. To be poor in spirit um, is, is the fruit of Christ living in you. It's being emptied of that kind of ego. It's picking up the way of the cross. It's saying no to the demands of my cravings. Um, and it's about, it's about the death and resurrection of Christ transposed into my life of daily discipleship. Think of it, so th this is worth pausing. We really need to get this, that the Beatitudes are the death and resurrection of Jesus, transposed, that's a musical term, right? He's going to transpose the, the, 
the death and resurrection of Jesus, we're going to transpose it into your life of daily discipleship. What would the crucifixion look like in your life when, when Paul says, I'm crucified with Christ? Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave his life for me. So there's this idea that Paul understood that his daily life involved death and resurrection every day. And it's the death and resurrection of Jesus transposed into his walk, his way of living. So I'm crucified, but I live. And what does that look like in the Beatitudes? The first half of each beatitude is the crucifixion of the old. The second half is the resurrection life of the new. So think of it. So what are the, what are the, what's the crucifixion look like in me? It looks like blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for justice. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Uh, Blessed are the peacemakers and blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness. These, are, these all involve the death, the, that kind of the, the death of the old self, of self-will, of self-centeredness, of selfishness, of the capital S self. That, that, that is not my spirit. It's more like my flesh. Um, Eden asked me the other day, well, okay, how is pure, how is pure in heart a crucifixion? It's like, well, it's the death of distractions and attachments. That, that cloud my vision of seeing the, the, the beloved face of God. It's, very, it's sometimes very hard for me to see Jesus' face in my heart. Why? Because the, the, the windscreen of my eyes is, has clouded over with distraction and worry and so on. So blessed are the pure in heart. That's gonna, that's, it's a kind of death to that stuff. But anyway, back to poor in spirit. So poverty of spirit is not just brokenness or impoverishment. Poverty of spirit is about bankrupting the ego. It's about emptying ourselves of, um, of, of, all, those, of all those things that, that want to pull us onto our drama train. I, I just think about like roller coasters, right? And inside my heart, there's like this roller coaster rolling by, and I, I can't even help the fact that it's there. But, but what I can help is whether I'm going to get on it or not. And sometimes I get on it, and then Eden just watches me go by, lap after lap. Or God just watches me go by, lap. When are you going to get off that train? It's, it's, it's killing you. In fact, so poverty of spirit, uh, or to be poor in spirit, is to empty ourselves of of all the things that are addiction to drama. I think it was the movie called Changing Lanes. And there's a fellow on there who's an alcoholic and he's just, he's just going through a series of incredible crises and making his life worse and worse. And so he calls his, his 12 step sponsor and he says, but I'm, I'm still sober, I'm not drinking. And he's like, your addiction is not alcohol. Your addiction is crisis. We're so, and, and so we get full, full of chaos and crisis. So to be poor in spirit is to have the grace of the Holy Spirit wash that out of us, to empty things out. But um, sometimes that's hard too because it does feel like a death. But it can also lead then to this resurrection life. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It doesn't mean you'll go to heaven someday. I hope you do. 
<laughs> but that's not what he's talking about. The kingdom of God is here and now and in you. But it's not yours if your heart's full of distractions and attachments and addictions. It's, if it's, okay, let's just pick on me for a moment. If it's when, when I'm full of worries, the kingdom of heaven is not mine. It may be in me, but I'm not experiencing it. I'm not walking in it. I'm not exercising it. I, I've ceased to become it because I'm, I'm so full of my worries, which is what we get to Matthew 6. All of Matthew 6 is just devastating. It's hard enough forgiving and loving your enemies in Matthew 5. Try letting go of your worries in Matthew 6. That's even harder. Um, but po so poverty of spirit is when, when, when all when those voices, when we begin to empty ourselves of the, of the way those voices just are always calling us into, into chaos. And so, so there is a moral sense to poverty of spirit and the, and the Beatitudes, and that moral sense is our, our, our death and resurrection with Christ on a daily basis where, where we're emptied. Now I want to get I think the climax of this is, is not the literal or the moral sense. It's the spiritual sense. And another way that the ancients referred to this is the mystical sense, or they also called it gospel sense. In other words, how, is, how are the Beatitudes pointing to Jesus? And Pope Benedict XVI said, the, the Beatitudes are a veiled autobiography of the life and character of Jesus a veiled autobiography. So right up front, Jesus is not, comes along, and it's not just that he's the broken, impoverished one, although he is a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, but he's also so emptied himself of his own agenda and surrendered to the heart and will and mission of his father that the Beatitudes are a preview of his passion, but they're also a description of his character. And so the very first one, blessed are the poor in spirit, is describing Jesus. And this is, the, this is exactly what Paul is talking about in Philippians 2. Though he was equal with God, he did not consider his equality of, of God to consist in grasping at stuff, like Adam grasped at the fruit. Instead, he emptied himself he, let, he practiced a kind of absolute letting go, an extreme humility, an, um, to an infinite degree, a laying down even of, of divine privilege to take on the form of a servant and in taking on the form of a servant actually reveals God as a servant, as a cruciform, loving, self-giving forgiving servant. And, and so the, the beati each of the Beatitudes actually describe Jesus at, in the, in, when, we go, when we ascend to that spiritual way of reading this. So it's not just like blessed are the losers or blessed are the empty. It's blessed is Jesus. Because look at him. Look at, look at the humility here in his autobiography. He's the one and again, you'll see it most clearly around the passion narratives, but he's the one who's poor in spirit. He's the one who mourns with uh, sweat like blood in Gethsemane. He's the one who's meek, who goes to the slaughter without, without speaking a word. 
He's the one who hungers and thirsts for justice and righteousness in this world and will bring it about as the Prince of Peace, not the all-conquering warrior. Um, he's the one who, who is merciful beyond all mercy. I can't wait to do that beatitude with Safi, who's going to come, that God, the all-merciful, the all-merciful. This is, instead of um, responding to the crucifixion with the wrath we may have deserved, he responds with mercy. And, and talk about pure in heart. Here's the one who's the undiluted vision of the image of God. And he's the great peacemaker and prince of peace. And he's the one not only persecuted for righteousness sake, but crucified for it and becomes the great proto-martyr witness. So, so there's this spiritual sense of the Beatitudes then that, that is pointing to Jesus. And each one can be applied to Jesus. Each one is seen as, in his passion. And we see it especially in, in the poverty of spirit of, him, of his self-emptying kind of love, um, the extreme humility. But um, uh, where, where I picked up on this, I was back in the day when I could read French still, I was reading Simone Weil and she was, she was connecting a, a French translation of the first beatitude with Philippians 2, when Christ empties himself, and she used a very strong word, almost offensive, voided. Blessed are the, those who are void in spirit. And then um, that Jesus voided himself. In other, words, in other words, if you were to look in him for self-will and agenda, you wouldn't find it. It's not there. There's a void there. But what comes into that void is gr the grace of God's which was the power that he was operating in. It wasn't like worldly power or just like magical power. It's like, no, the grace of God fill, uh, utterly fills that void. And, and he wants to do that for us. So um, I want to read you two quotes. <clears throat> I suppose we could even share these probably. I think I will. All right, are you able to see that? Did I put it on the screen right? Okay. So first of all, this is Simone Weil. This is what I read in the bathtub. She wrecks me. Grace fills empty spaces, but it can only enter where there is a void to receive it. We must continually suspend the work of the imagination in filling the void within ourselves. Now, she's not opposed to imagination, but she's thinking about all the ways we use our vain imagination to, to fill space and to to erase silence and so on. She says, in no matter what circumstances, if the imagination is stopped from pouring itself out, we have a void, the poor in spirit, who um, in no matter what circumstances, imagination can fill the void. This is why the average human being can become prisoners, slaves, prostitutes, and pass through no matter what suffering without being purified. So this is her great concern. You could have lots of suffering and, you're, and the suffering could purify you, but it might not. And, and what a waste that would be if suffering empties you out. And so you just rush to fill it with the next thing. And so what she says, that um, she wants us to wait and let grace fill that space in us. Um, when we're in a place of between things, when we're in a COVID situation, when we're in unemployment, when we're... Um, it's, it is tempting to fill that void as quickly as we can because we're uncomfortable with it. But she's, she's saying, um, 
This is why we fly from the inner void, since God might steal into it. It is not the pursuit of pleasure or the aversion of effort that causes sin, but it's fear of God. We know that we cannot see him face to face without dying, and we don't want to die. Now, what she's talking about there is, she's not saying, you know, if you pray and you see God, you'll literally die or anything like that. She's just saying, if we open a closet in our hearts, we're really nervous to let God in there because we might have to let go of something. We might have to let go of a resentment. We might have to let go of our worry. We might have to let go of control. The, all the stuff that we might have to let go of, that, that's why we might avoid letting God into that space. But, but she said, but if you do, blessed are you if you're poor in spirit. Blessed are you if, if life has voided you somehow. And, uh, because what if grace wants to rush in there? What if Jesus coming in there is the best thing that's ever happened to you? So on a happier note, here's my closing. I, I, uh, I wrote this this morning. In my, this, and this reflects John 14. In my father's house are many mansions. So we're going to connect poverty or emptiness of spirit with the father's house in many mansions. A variety of approaches to this phrase have been developed over the years. Some thought of the mansions or rooms as our abode in the afterlife. Others recognized it as the great capacity for inclusion in God's kingdom here and now. And there's also a psychological reading about the beautiful complexity of our own souls. If I ask myself what Jesus or John meant here, I'm, I'm currently inclined to think to the second approach, his inclusion of a great many people. But I think there's value in pondering the latter, and so I will. And this is like Teresa of Avila in her interior castles. I see in my spirit, okay, I'm going to get charismatic here. I see in my spirit um, how our souls are like a great mansion with many rooms. But those who are afraid or unmindful leave nearly, nearly all the doors shut. Imagine, imagine a mansion with a thousand rooms and you've only got three rooms open. So we live as if we only occupy a few tiny rooms and those are filled with clutter. But through mindfulness of the world around us, it's like just paying attention. Paying attention to people, to birds, to spices, to pay, being mindful of, of this great world around us and meditation of the world within us, those mansions within us, uh, the many rooms. We open up space within ourselves, including access to the tragic and the grievous. See, those are, that's why I'd want to keep doors shut, right? I don't, want to, I don't want to go where it's trapped. I don't, I don't want to think about that. But if we open it up, if we can resist the temptation to quickly fill those rooms with 10,000 busy attachments and distractions, if we can wait for and welcome grace into the void, the true light of love will fill our mansion and shine through our windows into the night. The many rooms inside contain multitudes of memories, experiences, discoveries, relationships, wounded parts, but at the very center, in your own holy of holies, at your deepest core and truest self, is that safe place where we can lean on God's heart and hear it beating with love for us. Jesus says, be not afraid. I go to prepare a place for you. So to be God's temple is far more than trying to quit smoking or taking up yoga. It's entering the heart of your mansion temple to experience the living connection of the Christ who built it, reserved it for you, and desires to meet you there.
So there's a surprise there. I've been treating it so far like if you have these empty rooms, we should invite Jesus there. He's already there. It's just us who has to come home. What if the father's house in the prodigal son story is your own heart? What if he's there waiting for us in our own hearts while we're running around like crazy people, you know, and, and he's just saying, come home, come home to yourself, come home inside, come home and meet me. This is what I made it for. And so Eden asked me, uh, what would be our activation today? Let me get rid of this. Where do I stop there? Stop share. Uh, activation. I, you know, I don't want to presume to do that, but if I did, I would say, you know, is, would you like more space in your heart? Um, maybe there's a place, a door that you've kept closed because you're worried what's back there. And, and I'll tell you what's back there. Scary stuff. And Jesus waiting to renovate, waiting to fill those places with light. Um, and, and we don't have to even think of extreme trauma. I'm just like, uh, um, is there anything I'm avoiding that if I, if I just let him have it, that, I, that he'd give me a gift instead? So I think I'll, I'll stop there. We won't go into a prayer exercise. We already did that earlier. Um, we did the prayer exercise for the, for the sermon with Esther, but I'm going to hand it back to whoever's in charge now.